The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. All right, go ahead and take your Bibles and open them with me once again, if you don't mind, to the book of Jude. We're going to just pick up there. I don't really have anything else to say or do right now to continue through this book. I'm assuming if you're like I am or like I have to admit I was, when you first look down and you see this little basically one chapter, uh, really almost postcard size, seems like a, a mini epistle here written by Jude that you probably see that and think to yourself, well, there just can't be that much there. Uh, there's not very many words, not very many verses, so there can't be that much there. And then if you're like I am and you look and you say, well, wait a minute, Jim. You're on about your fifth week into Jude or something like that over time, and uh, we're not going to finish tonight, so exactly how much is there there? I think there's enough to cover a long period of time. I will try not to do too much more of that, but we have spent already a good number of moments and minutes in this, I, I know, and I think it deserves a lot, but we'll give it as much as we can and get as far as we can tonight. Of course, we've already uh, dealt with the first couple of sections of the book of Jude and the way that I have it outlined here on the uh, board. I wrote it up on Sunday, but basically you can divide this book. It's an entire book, even though it's one single chapter. Uh, the way you can easily divide this up is to look at it from the perspective of verses 1 through 16, talking to us about exposing evil, and then verses 17 to 25 speaking to us about also encouraging or you might even say exhorting the elect. And what I mean by the elect, again, I was just trying to get an E there, uh, but we're talking about those of us who are Christians, those of us who are saved. And there's a large section of this that's really important, verses 17 to 25, that has to do with that. Reminding us that in fact, in spite of the fact that we're being called upon to stand up and to stand in many times for God, and they may come with quite a bit of persecution, that at the end of the day, God is always right, and what He sees for us and our, for His will be done through us is always right as well, even though that may come with difficulty. So that's why He uses, I think, God inspired Jude to use the tool of admonition to encourage us, to uplift us, to try to build us up is because of the fact that he knew that after we do stand and exceed and receive some persecution that we may need that encouragement. Of course, that's what God has set for this to be done in here. And the other half of this, to break the book down a little bit more detail, and I saw some of you did produce some outlines from a long time ago. I'm surprised. I don't know where mine's at. Uh, but anyway, um, you could break the book down further, and we already have seen the idea of the address, the first two verses, it's a very typical, I guess, of the time. Uh, although we don't have but this one book written by Jude, it's very typical of other New Testament authors to handle things in the way that he did and the way that he addressed that by introducing himself, uh, telling us who he was, what he did. In this case, he was a servant of Jesus Christ and basically telling us to whom he is writing and why he is writing. And he specifically said he was writing to those that are sanctified, those that are preserved, and those that are called. That's King James speak, but basically just saying, I've kept you. God is keeping you and will continue to keep you uh, throughout eternity and into eternity at least. And so that's who he's writing to. That's the address. And then we talked a good bit a past couple of different times. We keep going back to it about the aim of the book. And of course, it seems that Jude is basically in a nutshell paraphrase saying uh, that my aim was to write to you about what he calls, quote, the common salvation that is among us. However, 
he finds the need not to write on that subject, but to write to encourage the brethren to, quote, earnestly, verse 3, contend for the faith. And I know we spent at least the first two sessions on this, kind of expanding on that and making sure that we were aware that contending or standing up, fighting, battling for the faith is a lot more than just saying, okay, here's the basic gospel or here's just the faith, the truth of God. It really comes in, and the examples that he gives at least, it comes in to standing up for what's right, for what is moral. And it comes up to standing more than just for the truth itself, which is obviously included in that, but how the truth is being used and how it's being lived out in the case of this letter at least, how it is sometimes being abused because that's what the next section comes to speaking on. That's kind of the next breakout that I have. Verses 5 through 16, Jude goes into making an argument. And as he does that, he gives several, and there'll be about six total, six or seven depending on how you view it, but six or seven very specific Old Testament referenced examples by which Jude makes the case that if you stand against God or if you go against God's will, then you'll be punished for it. If not now, then in eternity. And of course, in some of these cases, most all of them that he does reference, the punishment was pretty much immediate. Now, there'll still be some judgment involved, obviously in eternity, but for the general population of, for example, Israel, for the angels and for Sodom and Gomorrah, that were the first three of these, verse 5, 6, and 7, the judgment was basically immediate. And so that's what he's letting us know about. Now, as I kind of break that out, verses 5, 6, and 7, the first section of this idea of the argument, he does give us what I would call some notable cases of destruction. So some notable cases of destruction. And the first one was, this one we kind of left on on Sunday, uh, was the fact that it was notable that he destroyed the Israelite nation, that he destroyed the Jews, if you will, because of the fact that they were not willing to follow through with his plan. And remember the specific example he gives is them coming out of Egypt. I'm looking at verse 5 for this. But they were coming out of Egypt, and when they went in, you remember those specifically those spies go in, 10 of those spies come out and said, we can't do it, we can't handle it. Doesn't matter if God says this is our land, it's our promised land, what have you. We cannot overcome this. And God in turn punishes the whole nation seemingly for 40 years in their wilderness wandering to kind of allow them to die out and to kind of allow a better attitude, a better mindset, a better faith, if you will, or trust to come into place to follow him. And of course, that's what he does. So he destroys, is the word used there, he destroyed those people. And that's the very first example. And I would say in this, and I've struggled back and forth, you know, I've, I'm trying to outline this in my mind and go back, but I would say basically the sin right here is simply the sin of disbelief, okay? The sin of disbelief is what they were in turn guilty of and what me might be guilty of in the same. Because even though we're not being promised to go from the literal land of Egypt to a literal land called Cana, uh, at the same time, we are being promised to go from the, uh, what would you call it? From the, I almost said fictitious, that's not the word, but from, from the basic place where we live here on earth to try to go home to heaven. And of course, God has given us a motivation. He's made that promise. And as long as we believe or trust Him, not guilty of disbelief, uh, that is something we can do 
course, through our obedience. And if you didn't have the primary example of that, you can write down in the case of Israel. I don't know if I mentioned this, but basically Numbers chapter 13, verses 25 and following, also Numbers 14, make mention of that and make mention specifically that when a few began to distrust or disbelieve God, many, chapter 14, verse 1, would follow that. The whole nation cried out, as a matter of fact, as a result. So we don't want to be guilty of disbelief. In the second place, verse 6, and this is where we really did stop off, he talks about here, I'll read the verse, it says, And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in the everlasting chains of darkness, under judgment of that great day. And of course, they're guilty as well of yet another sin. Theirs was not disbelief, but in a sense, it was disregard. Disregard. They're in heaven. They've got the will of God in front of them. They've got what God desires for them to do, and they disregard that. Now, what exactly happened? I can't be exactly sure other than we do know the fact that Jude said at some point these angels, these messengers of God, would have included Satan, I guess, but they fail. And in the case of what we reviewed on Sunday afternoon, indirectly talking about hell, we crossed about a half dozen, seven or eight, at least maybe, passages trying to determine and describe what may have happened with the fall of these angels, what, what occurred. And it seems, if you tied Isaiah 14 and verse 12 back to this, I'm not, again, I'm disclaiming I'm not sure you can, but if you tie that back and you tie the parallel of this, which is found in 2 Peter chapter 4 and verse 6, the conclusion seems to be that pride, pride was what got in, in the way of those angels. And so again, this word I'm using here to disregard got in the fact that God had a will and they said, huh, I don't have to do that. Or I'm better than that. I know better than that. Of course, once again, the guilt could fall upon any of us or even all of us at some point that we would disregard the will of God. Don't want to be guilty of that. And in the third place, and here's where we really are, verse 7, this is probably the most notable example, the easiest one to apply to the book, and probably in my mind, and that's just my mind, it doesn't have to be anyone else's, but the one where there was the most issue. The biggest issue that Jude is addressing here may come into the mindset of this group here in Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 7 says, Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And of course, that again, a reference toward hell, that eternal fire. But he specifically mentions out Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. What, was, what were some of the things? There were several, but I think there's always one that stands out. What was one of the main issues, one of the main sins that were taking place in Sodom and Gomorrah? We always think about, and we go trickly and quickly to homosexuality. Uh, the idea, really, of anything that goes against the natural use, that's what Paul told the Romans it was, the natural use of the body, and that could be fornication that occurs you know, in a relationship where there's not a marriage. It could be adultery or something like that that occurs in a relationship where there is a marriage. And then specifically for Sodom and Gomorrah, there's an ungetoverable fact that they were involved in homosexuality, sodomy, that type of sin. 
And so that was male to male or female to female, what have you, or just the abuse and use between the two. They were definitely involved in such sins as that. Now, I don't believe in totality that that was the only thing that these people are guilty of. Because a lot of times when you see something that gets to the extreme, and not implying that God's grading sins by any means, but in our mind we would, when you get down to the extremes where someone is willing to go against the natural use of the body for homosexual purposes or whatever, or any other sin that you might see as being you know, just terrible in your mind, once someone gets to that extreme, what has typically happened before that? There's been something led up to that. There's probably been something. It could be something as simple as, you know, they lie. They can't be trusted. It could be something as simple as, you know, and you could just name the number of things that may have built up to that, where there may have been some uh, lesser notable sins that came in, but something led them up into that extreme. Now, how extreme was this sin in God's eyes in Sodom and Gomorrah? What did he choose to do with, those group, with that group? He destroyed the entire cities for it. Matter of fact, if you remember the whole account, it really goes back farther in this, but the main account of Genesis chapter 19, prior to that, when God began to take note and recognize his sin, by the point that we have record of it at least, Lot, which was basically Abraham's uh, brother, uh, son-in-law, is it son-in-law or brother-in-law? I just lost that. Which one is it? Nephew, yeah, that's right. Lot's nephew had moved his way into Sodom and Gomorrah, at least to those cities in that area. And he had taken that choice, even though he and Abraham both stood with that selection available. And both of them stood back and said, okay, our flocks can't be supported by what we have right in front of us. And so one of us has to divide, one has to go the other way and one the other. Now, what Abraham basically did in that, Abraham stood down and said, you make the choice. Now, I'm not implying that, that if Lot had chosen the other, that Abraham would have ran to Sodom and, and been as thrilled and excited and possibly to be there as, as what Lot may have been. But Lot basically chose the greener pastures, it seems. He chose what, and this is the key, he chose what looked good as opposed to what was good. That's what he followed. And so Lot moves over into Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham is confronted with the fact that if they don't repent, they don't straighten up, I'll be destroying the city. And what did Abraham try to do on Lot's behalf? He went and tried to physically rescue him, but what did he do before God on Lot's behalf? He basically bargained, and I don't know if that's the right term, but he dealt with God, and God basically come back over and over again on several increments and said, I tell you what, Abraham, or Abraham to God, I tell you what, if I can find 50 souls, will you save them? Oh, sure. And that number comes down and down and down to what would seem to be or ought to be a very, very easy number to achieve couldn't be found. And if he couldn't find that smaller number of souls, then what that brings us to conclude is that Abraham, even, even Lot and his wife and family were so involved. They were imparted to the city. Yes, sir. God knew the whole time he wasn't involved. Oh, that's right. It was, it, from the very beginning when he said 50, God said, you're not going to no, you won't, you won't find it. And, and so Abraham and his family are at least melted into this city by now. Lot was said to be, have been seated by the gate. Now some have assumed, I think they may be right, 
that Lot may have held some sort of position, was in some sort of a judge-type position. I don't know exactly why, but Lot was there. Fast forward, God goes in. He pulls them out or begs of them to come out. Lot and his wife come out. They leave the city, and what did God do? He destroyed that city. And, of course, we have yet another New Testament example of that, Old Testament account, New Testament example of that, in that Lot's wife looked back, and she was turned to that pillar of salt. And that's the, that's the storyline that we often follow that we recognize. But in the midst of that, Genesis chapter 19, it was so severe that when angels had come down to try to deliver Lot or to encourage Lot to be delivered from that city, what did the men of the city want to do to those angels? Who they assumed to be men. Bring them out to us. We want them. We want to be with them, in essence. They couldn't stop with their own people. And I think that is certainly, if not long before, that is certainly illustrated above the line that they had chosen, I mean by that basically the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, had chosen to cross in that our sin is not just our sin. Our sin needs to be your sin. And they wanted to involve others. And so, of course, Lot makes a, a deal that I don't know how you would make, but Lot offers them to do what? I'll just send my daughters out. Just don't mess with these guys. And they tried to break the door down. I think that it's really illustrative just to understand the account. Read it on your own time. But just to understand the account here, that even the Saudis, I'm back in, back in verse 7 of Jude, even as Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over. That's an interesting word here, backed up by the Greek. Giving themselves over. That means pouring themselves into. They had poured themselves into that of fornication. Now, we can't be confused about fornication either. The Greek word here, and I'm, this is Mumford Greek, not Grecian Greek again. This is pornea. This is undeniable. This is not a flirtatious act or anything. This has gotten down to the sexual, uh, complete, fullest act of it. And it says they gave themselves or poured themselves into fornication, doing what? And going after strange flesh. Flesh that is not supposed to be flesh that is not appropriate in God's eyes. And then the next phrase, and set forth for an example. Now, I've told you plenty of times before, I, I highlight some things, I underline some things, I do a lot of tools and things, especially my, uh, my wide margin here, uh, to try to key my mind, remind myself what to examine, what points to bring. I've got boxed in, that's the most serious kind for me. I've got bots then that their strange flesh are set forth for an example. Now, I don't think this is any greater or is it any less of the two things listed before, the children of Israel and the angels that fell. But the fact that God chose to say that Sodom and Gomorrah were set forth for an example example God wanted this to be the notable unforgettable ungetoval 
sin, or not that sin being greater, but sin to be used as an example of look what you can land in. Now that doesn't make any sense unless we're tying back and we're going to tie forward as well a little bit later, but unless you go back and understand that what had happened, verse 4 of Jude, there were certain men that crept in unawares who were foreordained, didn't catch God off guard, to the condemnation of ungodly men, he says, who turned the grace of God into lasciviousness. Some translations actually had their lewdness. They had turned the grace of God, the freedom of God, the undeserved favor that God had on their lives. And he's not talking here. Jude is not addressing the non-Christian outside world. His examples he's pulling in are those that are directed to children of God who are inside of the church by that time, by time of writing. And he says there's some that are sneaking in the back doors, if you will. They're creeping in unawares. God was aware of such, but they have brought themselves condemnation because they were ungodly men who turned the grace of God into lasciviousness. And here's what the real sin was. In doing that, verse 4, Jude says, and denying the only Lord God and our Father, Lord Jesus Christ. To do something that goes against the will of God, to use the grace of God to give ourselves license, and that's another translation of this word, really could be lasciviousness, could actually be not the sin itself, but the license that they've given themselves. I can do what I want to do because it feels good. In essence, denied God. And so again, the examples from above, that one over here in verse uh, 5, the idea that that group, the Israelites, were guilty of disbelief. This secondary group, that is the angels, were apparently guilty of uh, disregarding the will of God. This group did much the same, but I think if you want to put another word for it, for, for the meaning of it, remembering of it, their desires is what overcame them. That's the third D right there. These accounts of notable destruction that come in right here, verse 5, 6, and 7, this last one comes down to their desires. Now, what do we, what do we think about when we think about something being a desire? What's a desire? Where does a desire start? It starts out in our own hearts and our own minds. And oftentimes, desires are not necessarily validated or made right in any real thing. It's just what we perceive. Uh, Sarah, this, this is totally not a good example, but I think about it. Um, I, I live most of my life without a sweet tooth. Since my heart transplant, I've got a sweet tooth. My donor's mama said it come from him. I, I don't know. Uh, but I, I've got one now. And I'm aware of that, and it shows a lot. But I went in Walmart in Talladega one day. There's a member of the church that actually works for, I don't know if it's Keebler or what. He's the cookie man anyway. You see him in all the Walmarts around here. And he was stocking the shelves. And I'm walking by, and the whole time I'm going, don't even turn, don't even look. But there he is. I mean, you got to speak to the brother. And I got too close. And he said, look. He's trying to keep him putting them on the shelf. Look, we got Chips Ahoy cookies on sale. 
And I'll tell you what, you can bake me all the homemade cookies you want. I appreciate it. But you give me some chips always, I'm a happy fellow. He gave me a family pack because I grew up with my granddaddy driving to the farm. He had little bottle Cokes, the real ones, originals, and chips holy cookies. That's all we ate. He gave me a family pack of chips Ahoy cookies. Took them home, stuck them up, didn't bother telling anybody else they were in the house. Woke up the next morning to Jennifer saying, what did you do? Now, I have to take a sleeping pill at night, so that's my disclaimer in this. I had eaten the family pack. I'm surprised I was moving the next morning, in hindsight, okay? I know better. I knew better. But what happened? My desire took over. I had eaten a whole pack, a whole family pack, three rows of cookies, and probably about a half gallon of milk. I'm not sure about how much was in the jug, but it's gone. I know better. But sometimes what looks right and what feels right takes over. That's what happens with these guys. The, these people in Sodom and Gomorrah, they basically looked at it and said, okay, here's what we want to do. Here's what we feel like doing. The people to whom Jude is writing, he's saying to them, look, don't take license because you have freedom. Because you can do something doesn't mean you should. And in the context of the book, verse 3, we are supposed to be as Christians earnestly contending for the faith which was once delivered. That means standing up. Standing up to ourselves and others concerning disbelief. Standing up to ourselves and others concerning disregard for God. Standing up to ourselves and others concerning that of desires. I don't get to choose. God's standards or clearly stated in this book that we have, we call the Bible, his marching orders, if you want to call them that, the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots, divide themselves out all for our good, and when followed, we have the best, most successful human earthly life we possibly can, and we ultimately gain eternity through it. Through Christ's blood being shed, his sacrifice, and our looking at that sacrifice, understanding what it is, trusting it and trusting God at His face value and His word, we, we obtain. Not earn, but obtain. And He says right here that these people went after strange flesh and set forth for an example. Now, as I probably said in week one or two back, which would have been months ago, Oftentimes, my mindset, perhaps some of yours, but I know as a whole this occurs too often, especially right now, our mindset is, you do what you do, just don't bother me with it. Now, in the example of Sodom and Gomorrah, they did exactly that. They tried to force what they were doing on others. But our mindset is, often, if you do what you do, that's, that's you. I hate it for you. You know, we'll, we, In our minds, at least, we'll say, you're not going to get in heaven that doing that. You're not going to gain eternity through that. But if that's the way you want to choose, then that's you. Just don't bother me. Well, a few factors come in today, and that is people are bothering us. But even if they weren't, Jude's instruction here through the inspiration of God is to still earnestly contend for the faith. 
let's use that one example. And there's any sin could fall into this, not, not to build anyone up or down, but God's examples are clear. Use the example of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, homosexuality, and stand back and ask myself, okay, if I don't ever say anything about it, how will that help the church? If I never mention it, if I never deny it, if I never try to teach anyone out of it, how does that assist and how does that help the cause of Christ? The answer to that is it doesn't. Not whatsoever. In addition to that, you take an individual who is involved in such, and if they're never told any different, if they're never even, even suggested to them that according to God's plan that, 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 that there may be wrong, and, and I'd like to help through love and, and concern for your soul get you out of that, what does it do for the person? It robs them of their eternity right off. It judges them without judging them. And that's what we're often accused of as Christians. Well, if you speak out against this sin or this sin or this sin or this sin or this sin, this, then you're judging us. Well, first of all, God's judging. And the end of it, God is the one who's the judge, and He's the final judge, and He's the only judge. But on earth, to keep the truth from someone is to judge them ourselves. And Jude says a no. Earnestly contend for the faith. You know, we have... Uh, and I don't know what the, what the outcome of homosexuality, fornication, all these other sexual type sins will be. Abortion, not sexual type of sin, but sometimes an abuse of what was sexual. I don't know what the outcome is, but I know this. We've killed a generation or so already through the abortion part of this. What about homosexuality? If, the, if that relationship can't bring a child, what children are, are not even getting opportunity? What are we taking from our futures in that? You, t you take my children. My children, your children, your grandchildren, whatever. We've taught. We've sat at the supper tables. We, we've, we've, we've talked about sin and, and what sin is and what sin involves and the options and possibilities of sin. They're listed out in the New Testament several different times, 17, 18, 21 different sins listed in one group each of those three or four times, and then even more. But there are actually entire generations of people right now who've not heard of any of this. Now, there are some people who are bent on committing a certain sin because they determined, I just want to do what I want to do. There are some people who honestly do not know honestly have not heard i mean all they've been told is you know love and let love and you know it's it's up to you and they they honestly may not know and i think well i know when you get down toward the end of this jude deals with that because he says i'm um, looking at verse and we're jumping way ahead for this um verse 22 and of some have compassion making a difference. That's the people where you say, look, I love you, I care about you and your soul, and so I want to teach you God's will and, and let you know that. There are others in the next verse or so in the same book that says, and others, some with fear, pulling them out of fire. That's where you sit down and say, look, you know you're wrong, we know you're wrong, God knows you're wrong, and, and i got to get you out of hell. 
And maybe you catch that person later in life even and pull them back. Because he says that even the garment of the flesh is spotted. That's in verse 23. But these three examples, however, stand as the result of disbelief, disregard, and desires. And that's where they were. Now, I heard that first bell ring, so I'll just go on and give you the next little part, part of this we're going to be going into at some point later. Verses 8 through 10. That was 5 through 7 right here. Verses 8 through 10, uh, as there has been this notable destruction, there will likewise be a notable disputation. I can't say this word. It sounded good when I come up with it. Disputation. If you can't spell that, I can't either. But there's a dispute here. Uh, not only has this evidence been offered, but God in turn through inspiration 8 through 10 tells us basically why any of that matters. And he gives three more accounts where things have been disputed among gods and disputed toward God. I'll read those verses. Likewise, meaning after the same manner, basically, verse 8, likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and seek evil of dignities. Now, if you want to read a verse that reads like the morning newspaper, that's one of them. Because that, that reads like much of the world. And, and much, of, much of any of us could be all guilty, could be guilty as well. But to be filthy dreamers, to defile the flesh, despise dominion, and then to speak evil of dignitaries. These people stand up. They, they're willing to speak. They're willing to, you know, in today's society, to some extent, the doormat of society has become the Christian. Now, I don't say any of this with pleasure, but this is Jude's, Jude's inspired message. The Christian has become the doormat. And so if there's a division, he'll address this more specifically later in the same book, but if there's a division between people, who's often blamed for that? The Christian is. You know, it's the Christian that speaks against homosexuality. It's the Christian that speaks against sexuality, it, or, or adult, uh, abortion. It's the Christian that stands against drunkenness. It's the Christian that stands against abuse. It's the Christian that stands And they're the, pro, they're the fault. They're at fault for this. We wouldn't be divided if they just leave us alone. Keep it. No. He, he, he basically prophesies here that they'll speak against. They'll speak against you. In verse 9, And yet Michael the archangel, when contending for the devil, disputed about the body of Moses, durst bring against him a railing accusation, but said, Lord, let the Lord rebuke thee. Now, your homework for some time, and you, I don't know when it'll be, Figure out where verse 9 comes from. And I can give you, I can give you evidence and references. Uh, verse 5 uh, came from Numbers chapter 14. Uh, verse 6 comes from 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. Isaiah 12 and verse 14, or 14 and verse 12. And then the last one there, Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19. But where do we have evidence of dispute uh, between Satan or the devil and Moses and Satan? and Michael the archangel over the body of Moses. Has anybody got that answer right quick? When God 
Well, we know when it happened, but we don't have any evidence of that battle, that fight. But uh, Jude sometimes gives some insight into something that we don't have otherwise specifically listed out. Now, as far as the reference of God burying the body of Moses, we, we do have that. And, of course, that comes in into play here. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 1 to 6. But we don't have exactly what happened. But next time that we get together, we'll, we'll try to show hopefully, what I understand to be the relationship between that account, verse 9, and what it was said in verse 5, 6, and 7. Any questions or comments? I know I talked fast. So we didn't talk fast enough. We didn't move it four verses. We, we said a, a good bit, I think. Thank you for your attention and time.